What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Drunk Turkey Show. And today we have a good show for you guys. I'm my my buddies are alongside with me as always. Hi, man, Big Blue. Hi, man. How you doing today? Uh, I'm doing good, man. The the intro was still going. I don't know what's going on. Like it was going well. You were talking. I was like, maybe it's just me. I don't know. But I'm doing good, man. Earlier I had earlier I had trouble with my internet, so I was like, damn it. But we're all good now. We're all good. You look. You're coming in great. You look good. You look good. The beard is coming in nicely. I know. It's time for a trim again. <laughs> uh, Big Blue, how you doing tonight, my man? You drinking? I, I am drinking. I am drinking. I got a little bit of a cranberry vodka. And don't worry, guys. Don't adjust your screen, okay? I am red to the look right now because I was in the sun this weekend, and I got cooked like a lobster. So. Oh. Yeah, that yeah, is I think my natural color today. <laughs> well, I'm glad you you made it safely. I hope you use a lot of sunscreen. Uh, today we have a uh, a special guest. We have Stephanie Brown. She is a forensic uh, medical legal medical legal death investigator. I hope I pronounced that correctly. How are you doing, Stephanie? I'm good, thank you. And you totally pronounced it correctly. Awesome, awesome. I've been bad with names and titles and things. It's it's been known <laughs> to happen with much simpler names like Kim and Pam. So it, it, <laughs> <laughs> three letter names. <laughs> so it might happen a couple of times. Uh, That's all right. Can you can you explain to us what a forensic a medical legal death investigator is? Yeah, so um, I work with the medical examiner's office um, in Seattle. I work for King County. Um, my job there is to investigate death scenes um, and help the pathologist determine cause and manner of death. Um, so what I do is I go to uh, a death scene. So it could be anything that's unnatural, mostly. So like suicides, um, homicides, and accidents, like motor vehicle collisions, all of those things. Um, I go there. I speak with anybody on scene. So any like family members um, or friends. Uh, any witnesses um, and the officers, I take uh, photographs of the scene. Um, I do a brief body examination. I'm looking for any signs of like defensive wounds or um, obvious trauma. Um, so that would be something like uh, like a fractured skull or you would um, be looking for uh, like a bullet wound or something like that. Um, it wouldn't be necessarily obvious to somebody who's untrained. Um, and then I bring them back to the medical examiner's office and I put them in the cooler and wait for autopsy. Oh, wow. Wow. That's, that's, uh, that seems like a lot. And, you know, it seems like we've got the right person for today's interview. That's for sure. Uh, how long have you been in the field? A year and a half in that um, prior to uh, being in this position, I was an investigator for public defense. Okay. Okay. So and in that like forensic science field for, I don't know, because prior to that, I was like a crime analyst. So I want to say probably about eight years now. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. That is awesome. So you said that you've worked with, you know, um, incidences where people's lives were taken and where it was unnatural. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you've t have you worked uh, cases involving where somebody's life, like murder, you mentioned a homicide. What about multiple people or multiple homicide, a scene where there's multiple homicides? 
Yeah, um, we actually here in Seattle, we've had like a, a big increase in um, homicides. Uh, and we've had quite a few of recent that were multiple. Um, typically, typically you see two, you don't really see um, three or more that ends up becoming like a mass shooting, but or like a mass murderer. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, we, um, I mean, it's not uncommon to go to a scene where there's um, a homicide and there's two. Gotcha. Gotcha. So in, in a situation like, like this one where, you know, cops were called at approximately uh, 12 o'clock, uh, they probably immediately recognized what they had in front of them as far as it being a quadruple homicide. There was uh, you know, there was no need for first responders like ambulances and things of that nature. They knew what they had. At what point um, of that investigation would yourself be called into to arrive? Yeah. So usually the cops will always call the fire department, at least out here. Um, and the reason why is because cops out here are not allowed to um, say somebody's dead, even um even if it's obvious, they're not allowed to say, uh, they're not like, so fire calls and fire just walks up and says, yeah, they're deceased. And um, generally they'll give us a call. And on, a, on a homicide out here, um, we have crime scene. Uh, so crime scene will come out. Usually they'll do um, what's called like a, a map of the scene. So they'll, they'll do their scanning um, is what they call it here um so they'll scan the scene so that it's all in their um all in their system before we arrive uh but usually while they're scanning they'll give us a call um to to start heading out that way uh the reason why they do the scanning initially is so that um when we get there if if anything gets moved and obviously the decedent gets moved um so they want to make sure that they've gotten the entire scene mapped out before we arrive um so usually it'll be right after uh, they've done their scanning. Got you, got you. And when you arrive on scene, what what typically do, do you wear? Is there any certain attire that you have to put on prior to walking in? Booties, I assume, gloves. But is there like a complete hazmat suit that that goes along with with your? Sure. What you wear? I at least with our with our division, it's kind of up to us. Um, we always have to wear gloves. Uh, that's mandatory. Um, it depends on what kind of scene I'm walking into and the place I'm walking into. Um, if I'm walking into like a hoarding residence, um, that's, you know, filled with, um, you know, bed bugs or something, I'll do the whole hazmat suit. Um, but typically if I'm just walking up to a scene where it's like a stabbing or, um, a shooting that's outside, um, I'll just generally wear my uniform. So we have a, a uniform that says what we're doing, uh, or, you know, says, you know, death investigator on it and um, like King County uh, so that they know. Um, booties, yes. Uh, we have what's called homicide kits. So when we go out to a homicide, um, we bring our entire homicide kit with us and uh, standard in there are booties. Um, so that we can walk through the residence and not leave any, you know, footprints or anything behind. Got you. And so <clears throat> when, do you guys have any questions at this point real quick before I move forward from this? Um, yeah. Well, I was going to ask, you know, I know this job is like, you know, not for everyone, 
obviously. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so what led you to take this career path? Um, so I actually had my I got my master's in forensic science and investigations. Um, and I always wanted to do investigations, but I never wanted to be a cop. Um, the idea of having to be a cop in order to become a detective just was not up my alley. Um, I had worked uh, quite some time in a laboratory and while I liked it, wasn't what I wanted to do long-term. I really wanted to be on the scene. Um, and I was sitting in my pathology course and they mentioned that this was a possible job. And I was like, wait, I can be an investigator, go to scenes and I don't have to work in a lab and I don't have to be a cop, sign me up. <laughs> so <laughs> it was just something that was brought up as a possibility. And um, thankfully I was able to get there. Was it was it hard to get used to, you know, seeing these um, crime scenes at first? You know, I thought I was I think that having worked in um, defense investigations first, um, mm -hmm. I was already reviewing all of the work that uh, medical. Photographs and, and stuff. So I, um, you know, sort of had that time to become accustomed to what I was going to see. Mm. Um, I can definitely see it was, I can definitely say my first day was, it was exciting, but also a little bit um, shocking. You know, you walk in and you do rounds and um, they go over all of their cases for the day and you're, you're seeing, you know, 12 decedents, you know, on autopsy tables ready to be autopsied. Um, and then the next thing you're doing is you're, you're walking out to a scene um, and just like, I think the pure shock of it, like you walk, walking in, you're like, Whoa, mm. I didn't expect to see that. Um, but I've got a good poker face. Um, so I didn't have that, like, I didn't have that reaction. I was pretty good about, um, having a poker face. I want to say one of my first scenes was a suicide, um, mm. where the guy had, uh, he had cut his leg um like where his uh femur is so like he was trying to get that artery down there mm -hmm. um and then and he, he wasn't successful there so he went and um slit both of his wrists um and he was just kind of positioned in this like um snow angel uh so so literally when we picked him up you could see just a a, a blood angel or or something you know like oh, he wow. had made yeah I mean, so like you're kind of walking in, it's like one of my first days and I'm like, whoa, um, didn't expect to see that, but um, definitely, you know, something that you get used to seeing there. I mean, there's always, there's always something that you walk in and you're like, oh, didn't expect that. <laughs> but, <laughs> and my, no. One of the questions, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. So one of the questions I had was um, from, on like a normal body, how much blood uh, is in the body again? How many gallons? I think there's, I think there's not. I I think there's nine liters, eight to nine liters. I, it depends on the person, but I think for a female there's like seven to eight, and for a male there's like eight to nine. Okay. Got you. Got you. Go ahead, Blue. I was because I know uh, that one of the questions that we had inside the scenes, they bleed a lot out the body. Yeah, um, I, I've been to homicides with um, stabbing cases, uh, and they are, I mean, there's a ton of blood. It's, um, it's everywhere. And especially in stabbing cases, because usually the victim, um, 
usually the victim's able to move while it's happening. So you end up with like a larger crime scene than you would with somebody who, sh- who shot, um, even in, even in a shooting case, it, I mean, if you're, if you're shot in the head, you're going to get a lot more blood. The head bleeds yeah. way more than any other part of the body. Yeah, um, yes, exactly. Uh, but, but if you're shot in the abdomen, not as much, but yeah, we get a, I mean, there can be a lot of blood. Um, the the times that I haven't seen a lot of blood in homicide cases have been with, um, what are they, the 22s, like the really small? Uh, yeah. Those actually can almost be missed. Um, I, we've had officers that have missed them, not knowing that it was a homicide. Um, and occasionally you have an, a death investigator that misses one because it went, you know, right through their temple and it's in their hair and you can't see it. Uh, and then at autopsy, um, you know, they go and they're doing their exam and they're like, oh, wait, you know, there's this really teeny bullet in there. Um, and they don't bleed. Like, they just don't bleed. Yeah, that, that bully sometimes just bounces around. And yes. It, it punctures, but there's no exit. There was this um, yeah. There was this case a while back. I'm not really sure what year it was, but this um, this man was being, or this kid was being... Um, you know, accused of murdering um, his girlfriend. And he said that the story that he said there was two guys came to his house, threatened him with the gun, shot the girl and shot him. And they didn't believe him because he didn't have no signs of, uh, you know, gunshots. But what happened is they went right here, right between where the eyes at, right? Oh yeah. And it went through there and he had a black, a black uh, eye. Oh yeah. He didn't see the yeah. puncture of the, of the bullet. Apparently he got shot by a twenty-two, and yeah. they, they discovered it while he was in the interrogated in, interrogation room. Oh yeah, I remember that. So that, that's crazy. Yeah, they yeah they leave really really small holes and they barely bleed. Um, a telltale sign that you've gotten injured in the head is a black eye. Um, they call them like raccoon eyes usually, especially if you like hit the back of your head. Yeah. Most oh, of our um our head injury cases will have, uh, whether it's bullet or um, like a car accident or something, uh, most of them you'll immediately see the, the black eye. Even before they pass, they'll man, get the black eye. Yesterday, I missed a cool one, man. I had to go to the restroom at work and I went. And I came back and my other tech was like, you just missed the, the craziest thing i seen today. I was like, what happened? Was like, Cause I work at an urgent care now in the emergency room. Like, uh, somebody walked in with a towel on their head and they looked like like a horror movie, you know, drive blood all the way down their face. I was like, and then he took the, the towel off when he was trying to check in and the front top of his temple just flapped open. Oh, uh, yes. And, it, and, he's, and like, you can see his nose. And I was like, what? It's like, dang it, I missed another girl in it. <laughs> but yeah, man, yeah, we had, when we, we're like, we're going to call an ambulance for you. He's like, no, I don't want to pay that bill, so I'm going to call an Uber. Oh. <laughs> he waited like two minutes for an Uber to pick him up. I was like, That'd be a one star if I was that Uber driver. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Uber would charge them, kind of like, don't they charge if you get too drunk and puke in their car or something? Well, that's the thing that I don't get is like, Uber dropped them off. I was like, didn't they see how bad you looked? Like, I, I didn't see yeah. him, but my, my, my coworker was telling me, I was like, dang it, I missed a, a good one today. So I had to go to the restaurant. I have to hold it all shit now. <laughs> so, 
So when it comes to this this scene here, um, I want to ask some specific questions to this this crime. There was this was a three story house, and you had two victims on the second floor and two victims on the third floor. When you enter a house to, you know, the scene, do you enter the front door? Or do you enter the the entry that they suspect that the uh, uh, the alleged killer entered, which would be the back door and the second floor. And do you go to the victims in order of the way you entered or in the order in which they passed? Um, so I, that's also pretty individual to each investigator. Um, for me, I would probably enter the front door. I would have gotten the information from the officer as to what they believed. Um, I, I will focus on the scene first before the decedent. Um, so I will, I would have gone to the back door and, you know, photographed all of that, photographed the pathway that um, I thought he had took or that police estimated that he had taken. Uh, but I would also take photographs of every location um, in there. I mean, we even go into bathrooms, you know, it's, we open all of the drawers. Uh, so, so looking at everything. Um, and then as far as the, um, the like decedent at the time that they're, um, walking in, they don't know, um, the order of mm -hmm. which somebody had passed that ends up being, um, determined mostly at autopsy or during the body exams, like on scene. Um, you can start to tell changes in the body pretty quick and, um, something like liver, right? Um, the blood pools in the body very quickly. Um, and prior to 18 hours, um, that uh, will blanch. The, so if you press on, on the pooled blood underneath the skin, um, you'll see your fingerprint come up. Um, but as you get closer to 18 hours, um, you'll see less and less of your fingerprint. So it becomes like a fixed um like uh, purple color on your body. Um, and so I would honestly walk in there and I would approach it as um, who is going to be closest to the exit that I was going to use to get them out. Um, because I'd want to make sure that the exit is clear for the next one and is clear for the next one and for the next one. Um, and then I, when I was, I wouldn't, like I said, I wouldn't know. Um, but as I was doing the body exam, I, I may notice different signs, like one is um, further along in rigor mortis than another, or um, the liver is blanching less than another. Uh, and then I would um, estimate, you know, it's possible this one passed before this one passed before this one passed. Um, and I'd provide that all that information over to the pathologist. Mm -hmm. um, and then the pathologist would... Uh, utilize that in um, making a determination as to the um, order of which so of which they passed or were um, or the homicides had taken place. Very interesting. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, <clears throat> there was a, a knife sheath that was located underneath one of the victim's bodies. At what point and how would that knife sheath be collected if you were in this scene. So the, the way that it was described was there was two bodies on, on, on a single bed and that the knife sheath was partially under one of the bodies and partially underneath the comforter. 
Uh, how would you, well, would you, how would you uh, collect that evidence? Where would that evidence be collected? And at what point in the investigation? I would assume that that collection would probably happen fairly early for the less likely for contamination, or would that be there for throughout for how long? Yeah, um, so out here, uh, we have the obligation and ability to collect um, evidence related to a homicide, and it usually goes with the decedent. So um, anything that is on their person or related to the scene is put into the body bag with the decedent um, and, and zipped up. Out here, though, um, or that may be different in other jurisdictions, but that's what we do here. Um, it is possible, though, that an officer or detective has um, requested that we don't take it with. Um, in this case, because it's a knife sheath, it's, it's probably very likely that a detective would have taken custody of that over us. Um, if it were the actual knife, we would have taken jurisdiction over it. Um, it would have come back into our care um, because we use it at autopsy to make comparisons to the injuries. Um, in, in this case, because it's a knife sheath, there's not a whole lot of comparisons they can make using a knife sheath, looking at the injuries that are there, because you're making an assumption about what kind of knife was actually in, inside. You can have an estimation that the length of that um, knife sheath is consistent with the weight length of, you know, the wound or something, but that that would be about it. Um, one of the things that autopsy they'll look for at knives is if the knife handle goes all the way down um, and like into the skin, you'll get a bruise um, around the around the wound, um, and that bruise, the size of the bruise, will be consistent with the handle on um, on the on the knife. Um, so, so at autopsy, really, they would want the the weapon more than they would want the thing that carried it. Got you. Um, do you have a question? Yeah. Um, when it comes down to the injuries, is it? Can you tell if by the injuries if it was a female who did it or or a male? Is there is there a way to tell? Um, no, uh, not at all. You know, there's a. I mean, there's the like assumption factor, right? You can say somebody, um, somebody would have a lot would need a lot of strength to do something like that. Um, from the pathologist perspective or from the medical legal standard, um, they're not there to make the assumption as to who did it um, or if it was male or female. They'll, um, they're just there to give the facts and say, like, this is what caused, um, caused a manner of death. And having worked in public defense, I can tell you now that there's a lot of assumptions we can make <laughs> that mm -hmm. are totally not consistent. I... Um, I've, I've represented somebody who was really, really um, very young. I think he was 22. Um, and he was, I don't know, maybe 120, 130 pounds. Not not very big guy. But, I mean, he overtook a, a woman that was taller than him um, enough that he was charged with aggravated murder out here. So, oh, or wow. aggravated homicide. Um, and... I think the thought process when it happened um, from the officers that were on scene was that this had to be somebody who, you know, A, knew this woman and B, um, that, you know, was bigger and could overtake her. And they were completely wrong. Like uh, a thousand percent. This person did not know her at all. Um, it, 
and was smaller than than she was. So it just, I, I think you can make the assumption that those things happen, but it'll blow your mind some of the times that. But, but they are able to tell if they're right or left-handed depending on the wounds, right? Um, they again, they could probably make the assumption, especially in a knife case, um, because whether or not you're doing it with a right or a left hand, um, it's, I mean, it's just dependent upon how you're holding the knife. And so like, I would, I would say you can make an assumption that somebody's right or left-handed based on, you know, where the wounds are, you know, located. Are you seeing it more to the right or more to the left? Are you seeing it? Mm. Um, if the position of the knife, like if you hold it differently from left to right, like if a left-handed person would hold the knife differently than a right-handed person, then you would be able to use that attribute. Hmm. When, when it comes, you, you were saying earlier about defensive wounds and whatnot. Um, yeah. When it comes down to uh, that, do you usually bag the hands to make sure there's yep. they protect yeah. for evidence? Well, we definitely bag the hands in all um, gunshot-related cases. And the reason why um, for gunshot residue testing, um, though, to be honest, that's been very debunked and isn't really working anymore for the defense or for the prosecution. So um, it's not really currently being done. But in all homicides, the hands are bagged um, to preserve any evidence. Um, and all the fingernails are clipped um, at autopsy, like down to, um, like down to the skin, basically. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So all, like, yes, we would we would bag the hands and preserve any any wounds you would see on the hands. When it comes to the knife sheath and the collection of, so we're to assume in this case that they're probably going to be testing it, which we know later on they did test it for DNA. When you know that this is an item is going to be collected for testing, what type of, where does it stored in? Is it collected and put in a plastic bag, a paper bag? And once it is placed into a collection bag, when is the next time that that bag is open? I, I would assume that it wouldn't be opened until it's ready for testing, but I, I want to make sure that we're accurate on that. Yeah. So, um, for for us, we usually use um, boxes. Uh, so if it's like a knife or something that we want to take with us, it, it would go into a box um, and then sealed with um, evidence tape. Um, if it's something that they want or need to use at autopsy to, for comparison, they will open it up um, then um, so that they can compare it to the wound. Uh, so it would be like an autopsy technician and a pathologist alongside the detectives that would open it, then it would get resealed and um, kept in an evidence locker um, until the police department came to pick it up from us or, or the detective. Um, at that point, it should just go directly from their, uh, from our facility over to their facility and stored until they're able to bring it to the crime lab. And then it doesn't get opened until the crime lab again. Um, when it is opened up at our facility um, and used for autopsy, um, it's used, I mean, you're using gloves and it's used as photographic comparison. So they'll put it um, like with a gloved hand, holding it alongside the wound and showing that they there's like a match to the wound. So like in a knife, for instance, they would show that 
they would show it alongside the, the stab wound and show that the like handle matches the same size as the bruise around the knife wound. Gotcha. Um, so, and then it would go back into like, uh, we, like I said, we use cardboard boxes. So it wouldn't for, be refrigerated and be kept at room temperature. Yeah. No. Okay. And I don't know. I haven't never, I've been to a lot of police precincts that, um, also store evidence that, um, they don't really have, I mean, they have like a drying locker. So, um, if they find clothes that, uh, have blood on it or something, they'll hang it up in this like drying locker and with, that's got, um, like a sheet of brown or white paper underneath. So if any DNA evidence or, um, trace evidence falls off, uh, they can take, they'll take that, um, piece of paper with the, with the clothing item over to the crime lab. Gotcha. Uh, so we know that they, they found touch DNA or transfer DNA on on the inside of one of the buttons of the knife sheath. What is your opinion on touch DNA, on transfer DNA? How strong of evidence do you think it is, uh, especially in a situation where, uh, by the sounds of it, that seems to be the only DNA that is connecting the alleged person to this crime. It doesn't sound like there's DNA underneath any of the victim's fingernails or at any other part of the crime scene whatsoever. Uh, how, how comfortable would you be with a case like this, knowing that that's the only DNA? Um, to be honest, I think that touch DNA is um, not, <laughs> um, not very strong. Although if it's what the prosecutor has, it's, it's what they have. You know, they have to go with what they have and use what they have. Um, I think one of, there was a, um, how is it, um, the Project Innocence, or the Innocence Project, right, um, ex exonerated somebody for um, a brutal rape uh, over, that was convicted over touch um, and transfer DNA. Um, and it, 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 like, the um, amount of time that went between the two being in the same area or in it's it, it's tremendous but this guy basically was um convicted of rape because they found um dna like on her shirt or something um and it was a very small amount um that they determined to be like touch dna and um upon so when the innocence project came and took it over um, they had actually found out the two had been at the same hospital nine hours apart. Um, and then they went and looked further and they found out that the paramedics that brought them in um, were the same paramedics and they had been in the same ambulance nine hours apart. Um, oh, so wow. they, uh, they suspected that the transfer DNA came from the gurney when you're putting them in the same spot and you're saying, you know, even if you wipe off a gurney, you can still end up having some DNA a couple hours later, in this case, nine hours later. Um, or you could have had, um, you, you literally could have had the paramedic transfer the, the DNA from that, that he had on him from that first guy now on to this female. Wow. Gotcha. And so they were able to exonerate him. So I, I, in my opinion, it's not super strong. I think you need more than that, uh, to convict though, having worked in, in that field, it depends on your jury. You know, are you going to get a jury that is a hundred percent? Like there, there's no way you can refute a fingerprint. Right. And 
I'll be the first to tell you that there's definitely a way to refute fingerprints that's more subjective than, than you would think. Mm. Um, but in DNA, people are just like hardcore, you know, it's a thousand percent correct. Like you can't refute it. Um, and from a defense perspective, I don't think we're refuting that the DNA is, you know, belonging to that person. We're refuting how it got there. Um, gotcha. and, and so I think that in this case, like, unfortunately, it's not super strong. That being said, it's not surprising uh, that there had like there there wasn't DNA underneath the fingers. It sounds like they were all um, surprised and they were probably incapacitated before they would have been able to um, do anything. Um, if you think back to like Ted Bundy um, yeah. and when he went into uh the what the the university there and murdered those those like four women there if you think about it like none of those women woke up none of those women saw anything it's very probable that you didn't really even have defensive wounds um they didn't even have defensive wounds you know so in your in your experience there's and we'll continue back we're there but you brought up a, a, a question for me is nine to ten minutes enough time in, in your opinion for, I, I, I know the answer to this, but in your expert opinion, is nine minutes enough time to have committed a crime like this where you have three, uh, three of the victims are female, uh, two of them we have footage of that appeared to have been intoxicated. Uh, two other of the victims were at a party where, where alcohol was present. So, I mean, we don't have the toxology report or any of those things to say that they were intoxicated, but I guess we can all assume that they may have been under the influence of alcohol. Is this amount of time, especially with a, a K-bar knife, eight, seven inches of knife, is that enough time in your opinion? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I had a um, stabbing scene where the person was not um, incapacitated at all. Um, she was sitting on her couch, sadly, with two young children and um, her husband came up and stabbed her in uh in the back and she ran away um, and she didn't she didn't make it further than further than to the bedroom so she she made it probably about 15 feet so oh, so i mean and that would it happened in minutes you know, or less than minutes probably you know yeah cool. so um Referencing back to the touch DNA, uh, does it take a lot of DNA to create an accurate profile? Is there such thing as too little DNA? And how long does it last? And it was found on a on a on a sheet, on a button. Does metal cause the uh, the DNA to degrade faster? No, actually, I think you'd probably get um, less degradation on a, a metal. Um, versus like a poor surface, uh, you'd probably get, um, on a poor surface, you'd probably get more absorption, but given that a poor surface, um, also will collect other things, you'd probably get, uh, more degradation there, um, versus metal, but metal can be cleaned a lot easier. Um, so you can, you can clean it up a lot easier gotcha. than, than something like, um, getting DNA out of a car seat or something because that's a poor surface. Gotcha. And, and the amount that's required to create a profile that, um, you know, 
a lot of folks have questioned that there's not enough DNA that the defense is going to be able to get this thrown out because it's just a small amount. Is that accurate? Is there such thing as too little DNA? That's what the defense is always going to argue. Um, but no, not necessarily. Um, they can use the smallest amount. Uh, uh, or they can get a profile from the smallest amount of DNA now. It's just the way um, we've come along in the process. Um, but as far as whether or not the, you know, it'll stay, um, I could, I would definitely presume that the judge would allow it to stay, um, just because it's what it's what there, it's what they found, either small or little. That would be up to the um, jury to decide. So what will probably happen is that uh, a DNA expert for both sides would come in and talk about. Um, you know, how they presume it would have gotten there. And you'll get the defense DNA person that says it's really, really small. And then, and that it should just be let go as, as nothing. And then you'll get the prosecutor's side that says, no, nothing's too small. So it'll kind of be up to the jury uh, to decide whether or not this is, uh, this small amount matters. Um, but I think that we can see from, you remember the guy from making um, of a murder? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So his was like an extremely small amount of um, DNA that was on the back of his car, right? Um, oh. Or on a key, right? Or something. It was an extremely small amount, but he got convicted. You know, That's so it's really going to be up to, I think it's really just going to be up to the jury. You know, if I were, if I were on the defense in doing voir dire for the jury, I would definitely be interested in um, getting people who are, more scientifically based um, because they're going to be able to say, you know, okay, um, I can figure out why uh, this would have happened and why it wouldn't have happened. Um, but when you get your, you know, your average individual, I'm, I apologize, my son's trying to no, come in. Okay. Um, so when you get your average individual, you know, you watch a lot of crime shows and like, oh, DNA is a thousand percent, right? Um, yeah. You end up with more people that are going to convict. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Anna. What's it called? When in this um, the Idaho case, you know, you have four victims and we know some of the injuries they, they suffered. Um, why? What are your thoughts on why there's not? Besides where there were, the bodies were, why there's no more blood around the house? I, well, I'm, I'm guessing that they just were completely incapacitated initially. I, my, my presumption would be that where they were at the time, um, that he took one or two fatal blows before they, and so there wouldn't be blood. Um, as far as like him tracking blood through the house, that, that depends on how, um, I mean, how he was positioned over the body when it happened. Are you, it, is the blood getting on him and then he's just ditched the clothes? It, 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 the, the knife, I would presume it would be dripping in blood, but he could have wiped it off before moving on to the next one. Um, so, so kind of letting go a little bit of that pathway that you would, typically think you'd see there um just by you know wiping it up just like if you're at home cutting chicken or something and then you know you walk across like you wipe off your knife really quick and walk across or you know so if, like if you were cutting a steak you wouldn't 
take this dripping steak knife and walk it across your floor. Be kind of instinctive, I think, um, especially in this case, it might be just instinctive of him to have wiped it off before walking over the next person. In, in a situation where the coroner stated that, you know, and there's been some inconsistencies with what the coroner had stated, but you yeah, know, never trust the coroner. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. That's good to know. Well, and, there's a difference between a coroner and a medical examiner. Uh, yeah. A coroner is voted in by the people of their town. Yeah. Um, a medical examiner has a degree, um, has a medical degree and um, is appointed by the county, but has to apply for the position. Um, a coroner doesn't have to have any sort of medical background at all. Oh, wow. So <clears throat> my question was, if, if Koberger, allegedly Koberger, and the victims were horizontal because they were laying down in bed, would that be a reason why there wouldn't be footprints of blood? Because his feet weren't in the Yeah, um, it's very probable that the mattress would have soaked up the blood. You wouldn't have had it leaking over. Um, I, I can almost guarantee you that um, that mattress is soaked. And, and it would have yeah. taken time for it to soak through enough that it would have been on the floor, but uh, definitely would not have, you know, been anywhere else. That mattress would have taken most of it. So one of the questions that keeps popping up is, um, with the time of them being passed on, or on alive, would there would have been a smell by the time the forensics showed up, or the investigators? How long was it? Eight hours, right? Around eight hours? Yeah, it was about oh, yeah. hours. Yeah, I want to say probably about probably about two hours in, you um, you're like you. It starts smelling like a really bad fart. That's mm -hmm. um, but as far as like that actual decompy smell that that you're you're probably assuming um, that depending on what condition you're in, they, they were in a house that was probably not super hot. Um, if you're in a really hot environment, it's going to come much faster. Uh, but on average, I would say that decompy smell takes at least three days to, to really come. So, so when it, so when, um, when this happened, it was, you know, during winter, right? Right. That's and like um, they had, they had, I'm guessing they had their, their heater on. Yeah, it was cool. So if there the the victim's body was inside of a room, door closed, and within eight hours, would that smell still travel out? No, no, you wouldn't. It wouldn't be. I mean, unless the windows were open or something. Uh, and I mean, even at eight hours, like you said, it would just be it. It would be like a really bad fart. And to be honest, unless somebody was moving those bodies, you you probably wouldn't even have a smell. Um, it's you get that smell the moment you move them and it's because all of the gas inside your body leaves yeah yeah i think some people maybe their question is about the blood would you smell blood when you're walking into a house like that oh yeah yeah you'd smell it would totally smell like like iron like you'd get that really strong now, yeah. would a person be able if they so you have two surviving victims right that were there um it is suspected that they were there throughout the entire commission of the crime. And is it possible that they could have gone nose blind to the smells 
because they didn't they weren't exposed to it all at once. They sat in it during the commission of the crime and stayed asleep. That's what we know. They fell asleep. I mean, yeah, um, for sure. And especially if they were intoxicated, you may not you may just be too drunk to give a shit kind of thing. Um, mm. And pardon my French, but um, it's okay. yeah, I mean, I would I would guess that um, you know you're kind of oblivious to to the smell. Um, you're intoxicated as well. It's um, some people just don't have very strong sense of smell as as well. I know um, some of us, like some of us investigators, right? Um, some of us are very, especially with officers, right? Some of them are like very turned off by the decomp smell. Whereas like me, um, I'm turned off more by fecal matter. I'm turned off more by the smell of blood. Um, but I, like other investigators will um, not be turned off by the smell of blood or they'll or just be like, oh, I'm not even smelling it, you know. Right. I I think also as investigators who are going to the scenes all the time, we become accustomed to that too. Um, mm. So so I can definitely say that it is a high probability that you can become accustomed to a smell, but just because it's in in the yeah. air. I, I I get that at work too. I mean, people are throwing up right next to me, and I'm just like, "Are you done? Here's your here's your here's your Kleenex." You know, and, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, like, yeah, here's your medicine, but you know, like, and then you go to lunch. Yeah, I go to lunch, you know, and I'll eat. But I have coworkers that will be like, "I'm not going into the room." They threw up, and I can smell it. And so, <laughs> and like, so yeah. I have to wait to move the patient, and then I have to throw the trash out or clean the floor or wherever it went because uh, they won't do it. They, they, they just so, yeah. throwing up themselves. So I get it. Is there what kind of tests can we be assumed that are going on with the bodies? Like, I, I figured that there would be like if they had an idea that they there a K bar knife was used. Right. I would assume that maybe perhaps there would be metal fragments that could be tested to determine that those metal fragments in the body could be linked back to either uh, where the metal was forged or 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 comes from the manufacturer. Are there anything that they can do to determine the or, or to verify that it was in fact the K-Bar? There's been some speculation that the person purposefully left the K-Bar knife sheath and used a different type of knife um, to throw investigators off. I mean, it's possible. Um, it, to be honest, testing like that would be done um, like upon request of the detectives. So they'd have to like have enough wherewithal to think about doing that um or or like the prosecutor would think about right. doing something like that um as far as the pathologist goes i would i would presume that they've prob they probably did like swabs of the wound um and saved those swabs so that they could do any sort of testing that might need to be done um and they would have also done that anyway just to try and get dna um right. so uh, upon like at autopsy, they would have taken dozens of swabs of the body to try and get DNA evidence off the body. Um, and it, it's not, it, it's also not unknown for them to want to fingerprint the body. So if somebody was, you know, naked at the time that the crime was um, committed, um, it's not uncommon to have officers request um, fingerprinting of the body. Uh, so, because you can lift fingerprints off of skin. Um, gotcha. That's 
that can happen. Um, as far as the metal fragment goes, um, it's, if, if the wounds, like if you're stabbing hard enough, you can actually break the knife. The knife, like pieces of the knife have broken off. If you've hit bone, stuff like that, they'll pull them out at autopsy. We don't, we don't bury anybody with any sort of metal in them. Um, mm -hmm. so like if you've got a bullet in you, that has to come out. Um, exception being of, you know, you've had an operation and they've put screws in your hip or something. We'll leave that in. Um, but if you were stabbed, uh, at, at for all homicide, they'll x-ray the entire body mm -hmm. um, during like prior to doing any sort of autopsy, any, any sign that would show them any signs of metal within the body. And then they would extract that. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask if they did a full body x-ray or they did a CT. I know they can't do MRIs because if there is metal, MRIs can, can pull it yeah. out. Yeah, they, we, we will do CTs of, of the body um, if requested from uh, the detectives. Um, and it's mandatory in all um, child victim cases uh, that will right. do uh, a CT. Um, and so, so it's possible, but for each and every homicide, our, our policy is to take a full body x-ray. And when we do that in our, in our office, if we do any sort of, um, alternative scanning, we're connected to a major hospital and we'll go to their facility to scan. Okay. So he, Brian Koberger is alleged to have committed a homicide, quadruple homicide with a knife. And to our knowledge, the only DNA that's been recovered that is Brian Koberger's is in the inside of a knife sheath bud. How unlikely or likely are the possibilities do you see a crime like this being committed and not any DNA be left by the perpetrator on the bodies, uh, on the fingernails, on a piece of hair, anywhere near the scene? Like, does that make any sense to you? Yeah. Um, I, I would presume it's, he had this planned out. Um, I mean, he would have, he would have worn gloves. He would have had something that was pretty clean. Not, um, you know, if this was something he had planned, um, definitely not impossible. Uh, on that one case that I had mentioned to you, um, like the random guy, um, mm -hmm. the only, the only DNA that was left on her, the female's body was, um, his semen. Uh, and that was all, only um, in her vaginal opening, but nothing else on the rest of her body. But um, he stabbed her something like 72 times, you know. Um, there was obviously DNA in the house, but he stayed longer. Like he was there. I mean, he cooked dinner afterwards. So more likely because he stayed there longer. And you're going in there and you're coming back out Um and I, I mean, I, I want to be honest too. I don't think, I don't think that it's actually possible for a crime scene unit to have gotten every area, you know, corner to corner of the house. You'd be swabbing thousands of swabs and running thousands of swabs for DNA. You know, there, when you go in, you focus on the areas of, of concern or of importance. So it's not impossible that, you know, it was in, you could have found some on the carpet or something um, and just not have, you know, chosen that as a spot that you swabbed uh, to look for. Um, 
and then you had a, I mean, what you had like eight hours between their processing. I wouldn't think that the DNA would have like degraded um, on a surface, even a porous one at, at that long, like that gotcha. short amount of time. Um, on the flip side, there would be nothing on him and probably nothing in his car. Um, given two factors, it doesn't look like they fought back at all. So you wouldn't, he wouldn't have gotten much of their DNA on him. Um, but the length of time that he was on the run, um, mm. he would have had ample time to clean it up. He would have had ample time to get rid of anything. So that, that, that was, yeah, that was the, the, the next series of questions that we had were, so apparently there was nothing found in his vehicle. He has a, he was a PhD student at uh, WSU studying criminology. He had attended um, uh, DeSales University uh, and studied criminology and has a master's degree there. Uh, you know, I felt that maybe perhaps he would have the know-how and the knowledge. The, he had no DNA in his vehicle. The, the defense filed a motion. In their motion, they, they, they put in the term that there is a, a total, there is no explanation for the total lack of DNA in a vehicle or in co-workers vehicle. First and foremost, does total lack mean none in your opinion? Like, is that something that you, you know, a term that you have used or does that mean a small amount? And well, when they, I, yeah, we'll oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, oh, that, that first question. I would say that in the defense perspective that um, total lack is, is putting reasonable doubt into the jury's mind. Um, and so that's a term that they would use even at jury, you know, uh, or even at trial, it would be um, total act because they want to put that in the mind of the jury. Um, as, and I would also venture to guess because the defendant has the right to, um, or well is supposed to um, participate in, in their defense, right? So I'm guessing part of his defense and his opinion is that there's no lack uh, or there's lack of DNA everywhere. Um, and that might be something that he's pointing out because he made a point to, to make sure there wasn't enough DNA, you know, um, he'd probably be telling his attorneys like, Hey man, there's no DNA. Couldn't have been me, you know, um, that you have the right as a defendant to, um, agree with your defense and, and give, feedback on how you want to be defended and what your defense is going to be. Got you. So if, if there is no DNA in the car, you're not surprised by that, I assume, but would there be evidence of a cleanup that forensics would be able to determine? I mean, I guess um, if you use bleach, um, if you used anything that so one of the things about um, one of the things that investigators or detectives usually use is just tracing the steps of the person after afterwards. So trying to find people that might have said like, "Yeah, I saw him at a you know car shop or something, cleaning out the car," or a receipt that they had gone and got a car wash or something. Um, there is there is some. Um, some cleaning products that will interact with luminol. Um, and so one of the things that you can, you can determine by spraying luminol on a surface would be um, 
maybe I'm not seeing drops of blood, but I'm seeing smears of cleaning product. You know, mm -hmm. um, one of the one of the big key ones is bleach. Bleach will light up an entire room with luminol. Um, but anything that's like an oxidizing agent, so like oxy, um, uh, anything with that, what is that, like oxy um, cleaning solution, that would probably light up a room. Um, I would, I don't know how, how much people uh, or how many people would actually know ab about cleaning products and, and their reaction. Um, funny thing, I did a my thesis on cleaning products and the use of luminol or luminol-based product. Um, oh. And I can tell you that some, like some stain removers will cause a, a reaction, but some stain removers and depending on the fabric that it's on will actually get rid of an entire stain, like an entire blood stain, not make it so like luminol light up. Right. So Koberger, he's a PhD student. He's done some forensics works. He, in fact, yeah. he had, wanted to um, be an intern in both local police departments uh, and work with forensics there. Um, because of his knowledge, do you think that there, is there, without having to disclose it for everybody, but do you think he would have the know-how and the knowledge to remove the DNA out of his uh, house or his, his vehicle and it not show up on these tests? Like a- Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I. I I would even I would even venture to guess that he um, also kept confined, you know, like even in his car, right? He probably kept confined to you know his driver's seat and and didn't go. I mean, it, especially because of how planned out and, and methodical this um, homicide appears to be, um, I would definitely say that he had taken and had the wherewithal to be able to say. I'm not going to go and put something in my trunk. I'm, I'm not going to pass anything. Like I'm going to stick to just my driver's seat, not touch anything else. So I'm cleaning the entire car, but I know that I really only need to focus there. You know? Yeah. I can definitely tell you that I could plan an entire one <laughs> and, and try and go. And I mean, I may not be successful. There's still maybe trace DNA, but I bet that I could get damn near close, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, you guys have any questions before I ask the final few ones? I know we're getting close to that hour mark. I want to keep you too, too late. Uh, hi, Matt Blue. Yeah. Um, when it comes down to, um, you know, when the, the weapon, right, with a knife, you know, most of the times, is, is it true that most of the times they, the, the, you find the, the point of the knife inside in one of the bones or like, when the knife hits a bone, it breaks off, and that's that's how you can tell what kind of knife it was or where it was produced and stuff like that, right? Yeah, it's extremely common. Um, extremely common be that, an, I mean, even the sheer force, like you're when you're stabbing somebody, usually you're doing it with enough aggression that um, even if you don't end up hitting bone, if you're doing it several times, you could end up breaking, like, the handle off the blade or the tip off the off the knife um or even bending it so then what you would see it like if i stab somebody and it's on and i hit a bone um the tip of the knife could bend and then i go to do the next one well now i'm getting a different shaped wound so you'd be able to like show that even the knife itself had 
had damaged along the way. What what um what part of the body would encapsulate? Hold on, <clears throat> I got yep. a cough. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> well, he's coughing. Um, I, I want to ask you a question. Right now, the jury, uh, there's been a big question whether or not they want to um, de demo the house. And one of the things that prosecution is saying that there's hazardous chemicals and things of that nature in the house that it wouldn't be safe for a jury. Is that accurate or is, are those things, can those things be cleaned up? Uh, I I think that's the prosecutor not wanting to get allow, allow them into the house, especially if it's something the defense would want. Um, just trying to to fight against that. Um, there probably is defense wants yeah, it I mean, demolished. Yes, um, I would. I don't know why the prosecutor would say that. That so they're saying that that's the reason why they shouldn't demolish it is that it's there's hazardous materials. Correct. That's one of the reasons. No, I think that's a. I think that's dumb. They, I mean, if they don't, if they don't want it demolished, then they're going to come up with any, any reason that they can. The only thing, like, for instance, when you go to a condemned building, it's condemned because it's too hazardous to live in, right? Um, they will still demolish a condemned building. Actually, that is pretty mandatory. You know, you get a condemned building, it's scheduled for demolition, you get rid of it, right? Um so now I think that's probably just some sort of excuse to keep the motion alive to prevent them from doing it. Well, I think they want to, well, the, to, to us, it sounds, the prosecution wants to demo it. The defense wants to demo it. And the prosecution is coming out saying they want to demo it because it's a health hazard. A lot of individuals, including some of the victim's families, believe it's because the university owns it. And the university wants to demolish it because it's a eyesore and and a, and a remembrance of what had occurred, and it's it, it affects their economic economy in their town. And so, um, you know, based on what you're telling me, it sounds like very much so that it's 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 more of a move on the finances because they're gonna they're tearing it down yeah. like in September or August, and the trials in what was it October? So it's like it doesn't even make any sense. Yeah, I mean, I know it's you know, if I were the work. prosecutor, I would want it to stay up because I'd want to be able to have the option of bringing the jury in there if I needed to, you yeah. know. <clears throat> yeah, I don't want but to it Jaime, sounds way more financial. Than, yeah, yeah, I agree. Jaime, what was your question? I'll be honest, man, I forgot. <laughs> All that coughing that I did, <clears throat> I don't know. It's, and then um, I, I ran out of water, so I was like, damn. So a couple of quick questions and we have some super mm -hmm. chats. Um, do you think that he wore coveralls? Would that explain the lack of DNA? Yeah, that or I mean, yes, he he could have worn coveralls. He probably has access to them, um, like even the disposable ones. Um, yeah, I would say that would that could totally explain it. Also, just getting rid of um getting rid of your entire clothing like he probably even if he didn't wear coveralls he probably had an external layer of clothing and he could have taken that off before getting in into the car then you're not transferring the dna that makes sense i yeah. my question would be is if he was wearing them where where are they 
because if he had coveralls on, even if he took them out inverted, like you're supposed to take gloves off, you know, you take them off so that they're inverted. You don't, um, you don't take them off by the tips of the fingers. Um, so he would have, even if he took them off inverted, bringing them into his car, um, you still got, you've still got them there. So, so now you have to make sure that they're bagged appropriately. Um, and then when you're doing that now, are you getting trans like transfer DNA or trace DNA on yourself from that too? So there's, there's a lot involved. I wouldn't be surprised if he wore something or external clothing, took it off before getting into his car. That would make perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. I think it wore booties. That's my, my theory because there's no oh, yeah. footprints either. There's no uh, shoe prints. Yeah. The house. I'm. I mean, given his position in um in the university and what he was going through in training, he'd have easy access to that stuff. You know. Yeah. So um, there was a uh, in the probable cause affidavit. There's this scenario where they talk about where the positions of the bodies were from the investigator, except for one, and that was a male that we have since found out that there's a possibility that his body was had to be moved. It sounds like his body was blocking the doorway. Uh, in, in the probable cause affidavit, they specifically say that he had an autopsy done like almost a little bit over a month later. It was December 15th. And that, that autopsy was what determined uh, the weapon that was utilized in his injuries. The, the other ones, it was they the detective stated that it appeared that they were passed from a sharp edge weapon. It was only the one that we suspect was moved. Uh, first and foremost, is it common for an autopsy to take place, um, you know, over a month later? It was December 15th when the autopsy was done, uh, December, November 13th when the crime was taking place. And um, do you think that they had to list it in that manner because the body was moved? Um, okay, so... Uh, the first question, it's not uncommon in this case because you had a coroner that utilized the Spokane County medical examiner to do the autopsy. So if you're, I mean, in this case, the coroner is actually just an attorney. Um, mm -hmm. She's an attorney. Um, she doesn't have a medical background. And if she had been the one to do the autopsy, it would have I mean, it would have been a defense win, like hands down would have been a defense win. You wouldn't have had the information that you have now. So now she has to go contract um, her autopsy out to another county. Um, so it's not uncommon in those cases because now you've got to transfer the decedent from one location to the other. You have to, you have to determine the contract with Spokane County. Um, and Spokane has, uh, you know, uh, every medical examiner's office has requirements as to the amount of autopsies they're able to do. And so Spokane might have to wait until the following month to do it just because they're at capacity for the month uh, of autopsies per pathologist. So they don't have openings for like taking in contracted cases. That happens out here in Seattle so much that we are no longer doing contracted cases just because the amount of, um, amount of autopsies that we have have to do um, is exceeding the threshold of amount of pathologists we have available to do them. Um, so in, so no, not I wouldn't say uncommon in this case. 
if it had happened in a jurisdiction that that had a medical examiner's office, it it is very uncommon that an autopsy is not done within a, within 24 hours. Yeah, I mean, usually out here for time. homicides, usually out here for homicides, the longest we would go would be if the um, homicide happened on Friday, we wouldn't do the autopsy until Monday. And that would be just because we were giving the detectives time to attend the autopsy. Um, one question a lot of folks have been asking was uh, some one of the victim's fathers and the coroner had described that there was possible multiple types of wounds. Some folks speculated that that could have meant multiple types of weapons. Um, is that possible or can one weapon make different types of wounds depending on how the person that is you know, operating that weapon is striking the person? Yeah, absolutely. It can all be one. Uh, one. Um, I think something we were talking about was, you know, the bending of the, the tip, right? So if the tip were to bend, the next stab wound wouldn't look the same. You'd have like a little angle at the top. It wouldn't be straight up, right? You know, it'd be angled out. So you're, so the type of wound is now changing as through the course of the stabbing, right? Um, also, the amount that you're getting. Um, so like, if I stab you and I only go in like, you know, two inches, I'm getting a, a smaller wound. Um, the size of the the knife would only be consistent with that like tip portion of the knife. So now when I'm going in deeper, the wound would get longer, right? Um, any sort of twist that I would put on it would cause tearing to the surrounding tissue. So I might see more, um, like I might see tissue tears versus like just straight on cuts. I, I'd see like bridging of the tissue, which means um, more blunt force trauma in that location than an actual slice. Um, if I'm going all the way and all the way deep, I may actually see um, the same type of bridging at where the, I would estimate the handle to be. So the so it would look like a slice, and then it would look like the slice had torn apart, and now you're seeing like tears of tissues. When it's not necessarily a different weapon, it's just that I've used it with stronger force. Yeah, wow, I mean, that's I exactly what was described: tears and yeah, and slashes. Yeah. yeah, as the person gets tired, you know they're gonna not be able yeah. to strike as hard, and they're gonna be twisting out. Yeah, it's gonna get stuck. That's like when yeah. you're trying to trying to cut a deer. Or, or, exactly. uh, or uh, an animal, you know, you, you get tired after a while, the knife gets to get a pulled a different way. So I would imagine it'd be the same with a human. But I, I was it gonna is ask absolutely you, the same. I was going to ask you if you've done other, like, big cases. Have you ever heard of the Stephen Smith case? No, I haven't heard of that one. It's the one where uh, Buster Murdoch was accused of probably causing his, oh yeah yeah that's right because uh his crime scene photos are out and they're pretty crazy like the inventions and everything you see uh those look pretty cool we ever maybe discuss that yeah i have to look that i know i know um i know the case and i know that they were charging buster Mur or they were like interested in buster Mur have they charged him yet i'm sorry no, i work no. nights and never get any time it's <laughs> uh, still unsolved but like uh, there's always a mystery if he was hit by a truck passing by or if he was hit by like a bat. So, uh, well, yeah. 
the little bit that I've read about it or seen about it, um, I think the location of where he was is, I, I don't know, it would be kind of eye-opening to me. I would, I would think it would be more likely that it was like a body dump in that area versus, um, but I would be interested in seeing like where his liver had formed um, mm. or if he was, or like what state of rigor he was in, what position he was in. Um, Cause all those things are going to tell us whether or not a body's been moved. Um, if you're lying on your back when you're stabbed, um, your body, your blood, like when your heart stops, your blood starts to immediately pool. And um, you'd see it on the, like, po- like the dependent surfaces of, of the back. Right. Um, but if I were to roll you off the bed and now you're on the front, I'd still see that body pooling on your back. And I would know that you were initially on your back. Gotcha. Yeah. See, uh, Buster, was, Buster was clear, but there's two other guys being looked at. That's what somebody put on there, but it's just an interesting case. The way the, like the photos are, are seen, he's still wearing his shoes. Uh, like if you got hit by a car, turn speed or got not a, it, it's very uncommon that you have your shoes on if you get hit by a car. <laughs> Yeah. In this case, there's a, uh, you know, we, we know that there's a K-bar knife used and it's been suspected that um, one of the victims, like I mentioned, was blocking the door. And so I would assume that, you know, the alleged coverter couldn't walk out a door that was blocked. So that blocking would have had to have happened after the fact. Um, there isn't any screams that are heard from the audio camera that is 50 feet away. Uh, but there is a thud. Um, I know without seeing the injuries and the location and those type of things, but uh, based on what we know, it seems pretty gruesome, but I don't think that somebody could have survived long with those injuries. I know that there's a question about Dylan not calling or Bethany not calling for eight hours. And, And a lot of folks wonder if they did call, could somebody's life have been saved? Yeah, definitely possible. If um, if 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 none of the wounds caused like an immediate like immediate death, like um, like you hit the carotid artery, um, or you severed uh, an artery of the heart or something, or you um, punctured the lung to the point, or like both lungs to the point that you just are not breathing, um, or you punctured the sac around the heart. Um, so if those things, like if I, if you had, you know, cut my, my wrist really deep, it's going to take me time to bleed out and die. Like to die from extenuation, it's, um, it takes time, especially from stab wounds. So, but if you're, if you like hit an artery or something in the process, then that's going to be, that's going to be really quick. You know, so if I'm just dying from several stab wounds, yeah, it's entirely possible that had they have called 911 immediately, that one of those one or more of those people could have survived. Well, I mean, the the lack of screams, would that tell you that that they were incapable versus like out of fear? So um, probably something that would deal with the lung or the throat. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's probably more likely that they were all incapacitated and wouldn't have like been bleeding out. Um, so if you're, 
if you're in that much pain, you can pass out and then you wouldn't be able to scream. You'd just be passed out from the pain um, and, and slowly dying, you know? Um, and I don't know what role being intoxicated would play Mommy, in that as well. Yes. It's over there, buddy. I apologize. Okay. <laughs> right. um, anyway, uh, I don't know how much being intoxicated would play a role in you just sort of passing out from from the pain. Um, so I I would I would be more inclined to say that they were that whatever injuries they sustained in the process were pretty immediately fatal than them dying of, of bleeding out from it. The right. the medical examiner report of the autopsies or the autopsy reports would be um, very indicative of um, what injuries had a occurred and which one actually caused like a fatal blow makes sense yeah and i'm not saying that there wasn't any screams there just wasn't yeah. a report of screams uh the video surveillance from 50 feet away was able to catch uh, whimpering and or crying so i would assume that they would have to catch a scream if there was one available um what do you do you guys have any questions before we go in we're going to do a little bit of like a rapid fire with some of the uh, super chats that we had earlier, but before yeah, we do it, yeah, I had a I had a question. Um, you said you, you know, you've been part of a lot of uh, stabbing homicides, right? Um, is it common um, for when it's a stabbing uh, homicide that there's flesh that's been detached from the body, especially when there's yeah. multiple stab wounds? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, because like I, I remember. <laughs> I read it, I think it was on Reddit, I believe, right? A while back. That there was flesh missing. So I was just wondering like if somebody's being um stabbed multiple times, I'm I'm guessing flesh will be coming with the with the knife itself. Yeah. Right? You you'll more commonly see like flaps of flesh that would occur so like it's not being completely cut off, but no, it's it's definitely possible to have like an entire, you know piece of flesh or even entire fingers severed mm -hmm. um the medical examiner investigator should pick all of those parts up if they're available they should go with the body so so one of the questions that was asked earlier and, I, and i've been asking a few of the ones that have been in the live chat I, i've asked them in a different manner so uh i don't ask them exactly yeah. the way they say it but um one of our one of our viewers asked about the latent shoe print. There was only one found, and I, and I want to expand on their question. It was found on a second viewing using amino black. First, does that tell you that it wasn't visible? Yeah, and they would have had to process that, much like a fingerprint. When you use amino black, you are processing something that you can't visually see. Does amino black, um, does that destroy the that sample, like, can you pull DNA from that sample if you've already exposed it to amino black? I wouldn't trust it if, if I had exposed, I wouldn't be, I would think that that could cause degradation to the DNA. Um, I wouldn't trust it, me. So then there's a good chance that that footprint could have been there a while ago. Yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah. Um, when you have a situation, the question was, you know, how reliable would that one footprint be? And wouldn't you expect to find more footprints in the magnitude of a scene like this, where you have somebody who 
went to the third floor first, you know, committed two homicides up there, then went downstairs, crossed the house, went into another bedroom, committed another two homicides, and then left there, went back out the same hallway and then out the kitchen. Uh, and there's no blood trail anywhere. Does that sound common? No, are we talk I don't remember um, what type of flooring they had. Um, but that being said, no, I, I wouldn't suspect that. I mean, I would honestly not even suspect that that one footprint that they saw even belonged to him unless they've identified it solely to him. Right. Yeah, that's kind of where I was thinking as well. Um, let me see. Let me go through a couple of these and then we're going to go through our super chats. They're not very many. Uh, let's see. Well, let me go through those. Uh, allegedly, um, with Brittany J says, thank you for all your hard work, guys. Thank you for joining me the other night, Daniel. Amazing stream. Thank you. I was on Allegedly with Brittany. I was a guest on her show a couple of nights ago. Go check that out. Mikey S says, um, have you ever used a mobile DNA unit and how fast do they produce enough of a profile to either clear or exclude a suspect in a case with multiple suspects? I haven't used a mobile DNA unit. Um, not something we have available uh, for us at the medical examiner, um, we wouldn't we wouldn't be the ones processing the DNA. I haven't seen any of the precincts out here. I think that um, that's sort of a gold standard test. Like it's not. I'm not saying gold standard and like it's the best thing that they have out there. It's just really expensive. So so a lot of these precincts and um, obviously they just don't have the capability. You may see it in um, like the bigger crime scene jurisdiction so like out here um washington state patrol has their own crime lab and they um will send crime lab units to the smaller precincts to help process and they have a lot more money than um something like seattle pd would have or your like more local pds um would have so they don't really use them out here as far as reliability i don't I don't know. I would still say that even if I used a mobile DNA unit, I would I would presume that that's more of a presumptive screen for DNA, um, indicating that there may be some present, and so you you need to collect it and bring it back, kind of thing. Um, so I don't think a mobile DNA unit would be your sole source. I think you would still need to run it through the laboratory. That being said. If you were, if you wanted to have something hold up in court, you would absolutely need to run it through the laboratory because you need to have um, somebody come testify about it. Yeah, I was going to say you're going to need a, a witness and also a confirmation yep. test. Exactly. But when it comes to the DNA, to get a match, like let's just say you have a suspect profile and you have um, a buccal swab from a suspect, how long does it take to generate a match? No, I mean, not that hard, uh, or it's not that long, right? You you can process DNA. Um, it, the reason why it takes so long is just because there's such a backlog. Mm -hmm. um, but the, like, processing portion of, of doing it, like, in the laboratory, um, getting, a, um, getting a profile doesn't necessarily take the time. It's matching that profile to whatever's in CODIS takes mm -hmm. more time. Um, so CODIS, much like... Um, the automated fingerprint system. So, so go like much like looking through fingerprints. Um, CODIS will send you the like top ten matches. Basically, it'll be like uh -huh. you you run it through. 
CODA. So come back with, um, you know, the, your top 10 hits and then your um, DNA analyst is supposed to compare um, all of them. Right. And, and it either include or exclude that individual. Right. So it's very common that you don't actually find the correct person until you're at person 30 that CODIS has sent you. Um, It's similar with fingerprints. Um, When you run fingerprints and you submit them, um, the, the programming will give you the top, the top 10 matches. And then your examiner is supposed to go through each single one until they have found an identification. Um, CODIS works the same way, and that's where your your time comes in. Gotcha. Makes sense. Makes sense. One last super chat, and then I'll ask the guys if they have any questions mm-hmm. before we call it. Um, Nesty asks, if you've been following the case, and if in your opinion, with the facts that you know, do you believe that they caught the right guy? I haven't followed it exclusively. Um, I, you know, looked into it for this show. I knew when it was happening. Um, I, I really wish I had ex- an exorbitant amount of time to be able to follow some of the cases that are out here. Um, I also end up following a lot more locally because that's where I work. Um, as far as the correct perpetrator, you know, I haven't really seen anything that has told me that it wasn't him. Um, I, so I would really like to see what the defense is, is showing me. I think the fact that they're fighting, um, circumstances and not like fighting the identification of him or, uh, and those things kind of tell me that there's possibility that he's already, um, admitted to doing this, at least to them, or, or that the defense feels that he may be a little bit guilty. That's kind of the vibe that I get out of them. Um, I, yeah, I would say yes. I do think that they probably have the right, the right person. Yeah, we we, we suspect it too. I mean, you know, when it comes down to it, it's the uh, the fact that he had his phone off during the commission of the crime. So, you know, he's seen tra- uh, traveling, possibly traveling through Pullman, uh, the mm-hmm. at around two o'clock and two fifty in the morning, and then his phone turns off. And then his phone turns back on. He's a few miles south of Moscow, and it's after the incident and so yeah to me yeah. it just kind of seems like it's the guy um do, do you have any do you guys have any questions for stephanie before we call it a show um not so much of a question i just want to say thanks uh thank you for being on for being an amazing guest um uh, you're super smart you know you know everything that it has to know about uh your, your career and everything you know and, and that's uh it's fascinating, you know. I mean, I, I could probably stay out here for a couple more hours and just talk about certain situations, right? But yeah, uh, unfortunately, we gotta, you know, gotta end it soon. Um, this, what is y'all want? Do y'all want to now? But, um, <laughs> but thank you for for being on with us and you know taking the chat's uh, questions and ours. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You got any questions, Blue? No, I just want to tell you thank you. You know, enjoy your family time, enjoy the outdoors, and uh, be safe out there. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much. But I guess oh, we're right. out of firewood, so I'm going to have to go get more firewood. <laughs> there's, a tree, there's a tree right behind you. It's gorgeous here. It's gorgeous here. Oh, my gosh. It is. Washington is 
nothing but a green state. It's very green, very green. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, hopefully we yeah. can do this again, maybe on other cases or on this one. I'm sure there's yeah. going to be a lot of people that have backup questions that we didn't cover tonight that yeah. maybe we can go into at another time. Thank you again for, for joining us. Yeah, not a problem. Thanks for having me. You have a good one. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Well, that was Stephanie, y'all. I think she did amazing. a fantastic job. I think that yeah. was an amazing interview. Yeah, she's going to take my job. <laughs> I, think I had a, she... I had a, a, cough, a coughing attack right now, man. Like, I couldn't concentrate, and I was like, uh-oh, I got a cough, and I'm not going to cough in the, mic, in the mic, you know what I mean? Yeah. You're Everybody's ears. Are you, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> off. But, well, guys, I want to say thank you to all our mods, all the folks that joined this, you know, um, our members, the newer members, the subscribers that have subscribed. Um, if you guys don't mind sharing this to everybody that you know that's interested in this case, we'll get the word out yeah. there. I think we got a chance to answer some of those forensic questions that everybody's had. What's up, Jaime? Uh, I want to say um, thank you. I can't remember his name that sent that fan art. That that, that was pretty nice, oh, man. Yeah. Real yeah, nice. And and if y'all want to send fan art, man, go for it. You know, just on the title, just put my name and I'll check them all out. <laughs> That's my <laughs> job. I, I gave myself that job. In fact, yeah, man. I saw, I saw the art. Yeah, nice. I saw the art piece. It's nice. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool, man. I like it. And um, like I said, like, if y'all want to send, send us fan art, that's cool. That, check is, them out. that is amazing. Thank you. Thank you for who created this. This is awesome. I like the, it says D, I'm pretty sure it says DTS with a little turkey on there on that bottle. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah, that is awesome. Thank yeah, you. Man. We appreciate all you guys. Uh, we'll be back on Wednesday. We'll probably be clipping out some of this show and mm -hmm. putting out those clips. So hit that like and subscribe. Uh, until next time, guys. We'll see y'all yeah. then. Yeah, peace, peace out. Peace. Take care.